Hi again, everyone. If this is your first time on the Reliability Matters podcast, welcome to the family. If you've been here before, welcome back. And for those of you who are counting, and I know you are, this is episode number 131. We are all aware of the industry supply chain issues that our industry has faced. Beginning with electronic components, it has spread to many other types of parts that our industry relies on. In fact, it's become a very common go-to excuse when someone doesn't have something in stock. Fortunately, it looks like we're beginning, at least, to come out of the other end of the supply chain shortage. But the supply chain problems have further spread into the labor market. If you're in a position to hire people for your company, you know firsthand how difficult that process can be. Adding to the level of labor acquisition difficulties is the great so-called silver tsunami, otherwise known as the great retirement. As I mentioned on our last episode, episode number 130, the fact is baby boomers are entering retirement in greater numbers. According to government data, from now until 2030, 10,000 baby boomers each day will hit retirement age. Let me say that again. 10,000 baby boomers each day will hit retirement age. Millions will begin to officially retire. Some of these retirees are designated subject matter experts within their companies. Not only are people retiring, they are taking with them a vault of valuable knowledge. This has created an even larger demand for consultants within our industry. I've had several industry consultants on my show over the past several years, including today's guest. Who is today's guest, you might ask? Good question. My guest today is legendary industry consultant Bob Willis. If you've been in this industry longer than 18 seconds, there's a good chance you've at least heard his name. If you've been in this industry even longer, there's a very good chance that you've seen his videos or read his books or watched him present at numerous industry conferences and symposiums. If I read Bob's complete professional biography, it would take an entire episode. So without any further ado, Let's have a conversation with my friend and colleague, Bob Willis, as soon as I return in just a moment. Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome, Bob. Good to see you again. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. Um, well, we are uh, probably members, uh, uh, mutual or joint members of the Mutual Admiration Society. I, I've always admired the work you do and the way you do it. Uh, it it's very different than, you know, uh, traditional consultants. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit. But before we get started down the Bob Willis rabbit hole, uh, most people in our industry know who you are. If you've been in this industry, uh, I think I said this in the intro, if you've been in this industry more than a few seconds, you've at least heard of Bob Willis. Um, and if you've been in any length of time, of course, uh, they've probably seen your work um, or seen you. Um, so people know that you're a consultant within our industry. And I'm sure there's that's just one small sliver of Bob Willis. Share with me and my audience something that most of your colleagues uh, or customers may not know about you. Well, um, back in the day when I was a youngster, I used to be a DJ, um, used to do mobile DJing, and then I went into a club 
and worked in a couple of clubs back in the day that you had um, played great music, jazz, funk, a little bit of reggae. Um, I did a little bit of uh, radio work, um, but it was back in the day when you went into a club and you walked across the floor and it was because of all the beer and other things that were on the floor that obviously got clear, cleared up. Um, and you had uh, a panic button. You you pushed the panic button when there was a fight and three bouncers came in and didn't say, sir, we would like you to leave the club. They did it in another way. Right. Things have moved on since then. They opened the door with the, the guy's head, right? Yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, so much has changed in the world of DJs. Now, DJs are the main act in many cases, in many clubs. People go just to hear a DJ, not so much the music they're playing, but they be, they've become famous in their own right, you know, for custom mixes and, and the, you know, yeah. the, the record scratching noise that they keep making. And I, I'm dating yeah, myself. I sound like an old man now, but. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, they, you know, they don't, if, if they become famous, um, they don't have to do very much. Back in the day, you know, we bought our own records. You didn't have sponsorship deals. You didn't get free records. Uh, you didn't get paid per time you played the record or percentage of sales and all this other stuff that's gone in. And uh, there's a very good friend of mine who became a DJ um, way before my time. I took on his role in the club because unfortunately his uh, his daughter was ill um, just after she was born. Um, so he wasn't feeling very well. So I just took it took it on for a, a couple of hours and he sat in the corner and uh, unfortunately I had a girlfriend with me and boy she was upset you know because three hours just twiddling her thumbs while I was having fun but you know I was helping somebody out that was ill so things mm-hmm. things change things change over the years and speaking of things changing um, for years or decades you've been consulting on, on the subject of electronic assembly surface mount um, all of that. Uh, you've been producing video content. You've been speaking at conferences and forums. You've been uh, putting, uh, writing books and and designing posters on best practices in, in a variety of subjects within our space. And that in great part is coming to an end. You have um, been threatening this for a long time. I've, I've known you for years and, and, and I think you've been alluding to it for a while, but it seems to be here now. Um, you're retiring. Is that, is that a, an accurate yeah, I mean, statement? Yeah. I mean, pretty much. Um, I still like to do what I do and I would still continue to do what I do. Um, to help companies out because I find it great fun, you know, and it's, it's it's really nice when somebody takes a little bit of advice and proves it's right. But I always try and say something and then justify it by showing it happening or, or, or not happening as the case may be. Um, it's very easy for a consultant to just say, well, do this, do that, and it might work. It might improve your process. I like to actually what they call walk the talk as well as talk the talk. Uh, which unfortunately doesn't necessarily always uh, happen within our industry, but uh, you know that's 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 kind of I guess what makes me slightly different. And um, I've created hundreds of videos, small videos, over the years to show something happening because I think you can talk about something, but if you can show it happening, then that's believable. I mean, some of it is perhaps not 
absolutely accurate from a technical point of view, but it shows the concept. It shows a solder joint failing. It shows dendri dendrite formation. It, it shows components uh, failing because of poor cleaning practice. You know, those sort of things. And it kind of, rather static picture, I've always found that that is much more valuable um, to uh, show engineers or, you know, show or prove some, a point. Right. So you've almost answered a question I haven't asked yet, uh, a couple pages away from here, but I'm, I'm just going to skip to that. And I'm going to ask the question, which you partially answered, and then we'll go a little deeper. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And if that is true, a video is probably worth a million words, right? Um, and I love working with video. You and I share that that passion of of being able to not just talk about or write about, but actually show. And uh, and I find that medium very successful. What motivated you to start producing video? Because it, it, today it's a lot easier to produce than it was 20 years ago when we st first started playing with it. Um, but it's still not easy. You know, it's, it's, you know, for some people, it's just easier to explain, you know, or write than produce a video because video has a lot of elements to it. You still have to write, you still have to, you know, you still have to create something, but it's a little bit more complex, um, more moving parts, pardon the pun. Um, what, what, what was your motivation to start doing that? And how did you learn that craft? Well, first of all, the motivation was fairly simple. Um, when I started working for uh, uh, NEPCON um, back in the day, and obviously then IPC Apex, I started off with all of my workshops, you've got a free video. So that may be different straight away. So if somebody signed up for a half day workshop, they got a video. So I produced videos for the workshops I taught. And of course, that was another income stream in those days. It was you know, fairly unique. And there was only one other person who was doing it at that time. Uh, the big problem was coming to America because we have a thing called VHS. Uh, you have a thing called VHS NTC format. So it's a different yeah. format, PAL. To, so I had to go to a, a place and have them converted and produced for me. And then I thought, this is ridiculous. We've got all these uh, uh, big, bulky tapes that I take, 30, 40, 50, depending on the number of delegates are going to be there. And of course, you have to take a couple of extras, late sign-ups for workshops. So I thought, let's get into interactive CDs. So we're still producing the video content. We're producing text that goes with it and pictures and moving pictures. So that was sort of the next iteration. And then I started to get into webinars. And I, I kind of think that uh, apart from IMAPS, I was the first, well, first guy to do uh, training webinars in our space of electronics. And I did those for quite a few years, way before uh, the pandemic. And again, that was great because people could come along, listen to something, ask questions. Uh, so I never got bored with the doing the 60 minute presentation and then having the 30 minutes of questions afterwards. It didn't bother me. You know, I mean, I was happy, you know, um, that, that was great fun. And then I went into because I'd taken so many photographs over the years, right from the very, very start when I was a young engineer which were low resolution in those days. So, well, they were high resolution to us, 640 by 480. In those days, and it was high resolution. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I can remember, um, you know, having one of those uh, Sony disc cameras. You you put your floppy disc in and took pictures. Um, that was sort of like my third generation camera. So then I took all those pictures and sold them online on the website. But, you know, still to this day, a 644... A 480 image of let's say a solder joint or, or or pore cleaning you know can go into any powerpoint presentation still look amazing but you've got these marketing people who think you need you know six million megabyte picture to show something that's pretty irrelevant anyway <laughs> and so sometimes people criticize the pictures for being i said what do you want to use it for i want to put it on a website i want to put it in a powerpoint presentation well why do you need it bigger so so though you know that that's and then the posters came along because originally the posters were all printed posters there were a three color posters that we put into a, a jiffy bag or a big jiffy bag and sent them worldwide and i thought why don't i just produce pdfs and and say to a company if you want to print more be my guest but don't give it to somebody else to print you know you buy it mr radio whoever um use it in your own company Print a load of copies if you wish. And then it was, you know, the profitable, profitability went up dramatically. So that's sort sure. of all the th- the products that I used to produce. But I used them for my own training activity, but also made them available. Yeah, excellent. So, so as I stated in the intro, most of the time when someone retires, they take with them pretty much everything they know, right? Uh, they pack up their coffee cup, they get their golden ashtray or watch and 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 they leave with all their knowledge uh this is a little bit different in your case because you've kind of left us a, a legacy behind uh, which is vast amounts of training material as we've been talking about uh and you've recently donated much of that training material to smta uh, tell me what specific types of training material you've made available to uh, smta and and the motivation to to do that as opposed to you know, just leaving it on an online store and, you know, waking up in the morning with more money in your bank account than when you went to bed the night before. <laughs> that that would be a novelty, wouldn't it? But uh, in our business, <laughs> uh, you, that doesn't really work quite that way. It's but, supposed but to work seriously, that way. But... It's supposed to work that way. But seriously, um, I didn't want this material just to disappear. You know, what's the point? Um, there is a value to some people. Um, so I, I, I had a conversation and thought, well, you know, how can I monetize it, but not for me, for charity? So uh, I said to uh, Ryan at SMTA originally, I said, look, you know, you know the stuff. You haven't, you haven't sold millions of these things. You haven't, you know, sort of made a fortune out of it. But how about if I give it, every, give it to you, we find a sponsor for it, and then uh, you make it available? And um, the guys at SMTA thought it was a good idea. Um, they wanted to make it available originally uh, to members, members only. I said, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. If you want it and you want the kudos of having it all and the marketing associated with it, that's fine. Um, but I want it to be freely available to anybody. Of course, hopefully, people will realize the benefits and, um, and join because SMTA is really fairly inexpensive for what you can get out of it so i'm not selling smta bob this has nothing to do with me being on the board of directors but it is only six cents a day no well i didn't know that fact (laughs) but it's ridiculous in all honesty it's ridiculous um so you know any engineer 
be a student could afford to pay for an individual membership and right. and, and reap the benefits out of it and i'm not doing it because you told me to do it i i truly believe it and sure. i believed yes. it when i when we had smart group smart group was the group that started exactly the same year as SMTA. SMTA uh, was phenomenally successful. Smart Group, in its own little way, in the in the UK, was very successful. And then, obviously, we've morphed and become, you know, part of uh, SMTA. So I got got a sponsor, and we got an agreement going. So half of the money went to uh, a cancer charity, and half the money went uh, to uh, the Hutchins Fund scholarship mm. fund. Charles um, Hutchins, yeah. Yeah, because I knew the guy. I'd met him. Interesting character, being a Texan, you know, quite loud, very, very, very open. But he was always in the conference speaker's office, like me, early. You've got the other guys turn up with about three minutes to spare before they give their presentation and then whinge that their projector's not working. And in the last three it, minutes, they were actually making changes to their presentation. I've yeah, seen those yeah. people. Yeah. Well, no, no, in those days, it was. Oh, I'll have that slide there. No, oh, there you go. Oh, better make sure it's yeah. the right way around. No, 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 no. It's not this, not this PowerPoint stuff. It was right. It, it, it <laughs> and was overheads as well. Overhead projectors. Yes, I remember yes. those days with your transparencies. Yeah, but it was great because you could actually get moving images. You could you could put a, a, a some water underneath your slide, and you could actually make it move and vibrate. <laughs> That's I, I, re stuff. I remember one of my first time presenting. Uh, it, it was using those transparencies and and. Uh, it, it redefined the term crash. You know, the, the crash was when you dropped your transparencies and all 30 of them are now in random order, right? You know, and, and that's, that was always an issue, but um, yeah, we've come a long way. In, we in have, we have. Yeah. And I think some people have mastered the craft of PowerPoint uh, a little better than others. Uh, some well, of them I, are very good, very slick. And some of them, Oh dear. I actually teach a course on SMTA. Uh, SMTA sells the course uh, and uh, it's called how to avoid death by PowerPoint. And, and uh, I show a, a, a film clip, um, a still of a very popular American TV show called Brady Bunch. Right. And the intro to the show is nine squares, each square with one of the Brady Bunch family members in it. And I'm like, they were the original zoom family. Right. And then I, I show um, a, um, a still of what it would be like today if the Brady Bunch were out today. And it would be like Marsha is all blurry and Greg has a cat in front of him and, and, and uh, uh, Jan Brady is underlit and Peter Brady is overlit. And, you know, be, you know I, I can't tell you how many um, um, PowerPoint presentations and Zoom meetings and all that have just been so cringeworthy you'd rather grind glass in your eye than sit through it right i mean the content might be good but the but the or the knowledge that you can take out of it might be good you just can't get through it, it it's it's awful well a, a good presenter with a good presentation is wonderful uh very very good content and a mediocre presentation is very good content but both of them bad is not very good right right i i totally agree um <laughs> and and we've all sat through you being a, a regular speaker or me being a regular speaker we've all sat through the rest of the conferences and and some of them are a little harder than others and some of them are really inspiring and they'll inspire you to up your game you're one of those inspiring people oh no i mean i think i would suggest that you know i learn every day I've, i hope that i learn every day 
And when you see a technique or you see a, a method of presentation, a method of sharing information, I mean, I can remember two specific videos of failures of BGA joints that I saw somebody do. And I thought, that is amazing. I'm going to do that. But I hadn't got the budget. So I did, <laughs> I did the Bob Willis version of it. It still did the same thing. It still showed the solder joint separating uh, through uh, uh, poor uh, control of uh, double-sided reflow heat. But the other company had a bigger budget. Uh, so it was much classier. But... Mine still did the same job, which so I, I take inspiration sometimes from other things as well. A college version versus a Steven Spielberg version, right? <laughs> right. Great analogy. Um, well, you know, Steven Spielberg's first theatrical release was a movie called Duel with Dennis Weaver, and it was actually a college project that he had. So, you know, there's hope for all of us, right? We can all <laughs> start there and become him. Uh, so for over 30 years, you've been providing training and consultancy to companies within our industry. Um, is there a particular course or subject that has proven to be most popular? In other words, is there a subject that just won't die <laughs> and you're constantly teaching it? Well, I haven't uh, taught this particular course for uh, probably uh, two probably two years. But if you take if you look at all of the, the courses that I've done over the years, um, because I used to um, run all the training for Electrovert Consulting Services uh, in the UK and Europe, I did wave soldering courses. So I did a two-day course, I did a one-day theoretical course, and a one-day hands-on course. And I did that month on month on month for uh, easily 10 years and probably more. So on the wave soldering side, and some of the people – and you'll mention it later on, um, who've made donations uh, to uh, my new book. Um, it was really nice and flattering that, um, you know, they'd made a large, they actually sort of mentioned it to me, you know, we're making a donation because we've been in the industry a long time now, but we very first started coming to one of your wave solder courses. And it's, it's great, you know, they're now senior managers, but, you know, they were sitting on seats, uncomfortable seats, because I bought them, they were very, very inexpensive um, for, for two days, and part of it was a little bit of hands-on as well. Um, so that's sort of the, the number one course. But the courses that I get fun out of, more fun out of uh, um, nowadays, and when I've gone to different countries, um, to um, Singapore, Malaysia, China, um, doing courses on hand soldering and rework. And so, you know, doing rework courses and, you know, how you can improve this, how you can do this, how you can make it better. Um, you know, because operators want to know how to do something and how to do it better. So they don't want any BS, which engineers will probably put up with. If you can't do it, if you can't show it, they're not interested. They want to know and see how to do it. So that is demanding, far more demanding than any theoretical course. Yeah. You know, you talk about hand soldering. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday um, about an upcoming episode. We're doing a rework uh, episode uh, coming up in a, a few weeks. And the, um, the, the context of the conversation was how hand soldering is really a science and an art. And someone said, no, it's not an art, it's pure science. And I said, well, every time I, you know, I go to a major trade show in Apex or something, 
Um, they have someone is sponsoring a hand soldering contest, right? No one sponsors an AOI contest. No one sponsors a solder printing contest, right? But when when you get contestants to sign up to to win a prize and be judged by the quality of their work, there's artwork there, right? There's a skill level there. Call it art, call it skill, but it's still not everyone possesses the same ability. It's not everyone can push a green button. It it's there's nuances to it uh, and there's science involved. And yeah, abs absolutely. But um, I, I'm slightly frustrated that um, the organization concerned who has been running these courses for uh, quite a few years, um, you know, with sponsors. Um, I said to them back in the day, you've got to move on. You know, fine. That's great. You're doing a great job making lots of money. Um, but you've got to go the next step. And we, we've got to start to talk about rework and repair of boards, you know. So I developed a whole course, which I ran twice, once in – well, not, it's not a course. It's really a the experience. I called it the experience, like all the other things I do. Um, and it was exactly the same concept that you've got uh, six, eight, ten people together, and they all did the same thing. They re they reworked a board. Well, they actually built the board, first of all. They built it with BGAs and CSPs and more small chip components, and then they reworked it. So they had to demonstrate they could put it back together because if you just took the things off, you'd need new things new components so the price would go up of the course and you know etc so i did it the other way around you've got to build it force and then you've got to take them off and then it didn't matter so much okay. if the, you couldn't really use the bga so you know the whole thing was in place the inspection criteria all that sort of stuff and we did it twice and i said to the said to the organization <laughs> concerned you know you can have the rights to it don't say it was your course. I dreamed it all up. I've given it to you. You can do it worldwide. I don't mind. And they never did. I, I, <laughs> there are so many companies who've got some splendid rework equipment, both manual and fully automatic. You know, why can't they just move it on? But well, perhaps it was a, one of my bad ideas. I don't know. Well, who knows? Um, from your perspective, Bob, what are some of the most common mistakes uh, made in the assembly process? Either legacy mistakes, or or that still occur, or you know, uh, or the, a new mistake that you see. What, what what are the common ones? All of the above, because <laughs> you know, even in the last um, I don't know year, I've been looking at uh, you know process failures, process uh, defects, etc which I was looking at, and that's not me boasting anyway. It's just I st still see a lot of people making the same mistakes or doing having the same problems. So there is solutions, easy things. I can say, okay, here's something I've done. Here's, here's a picture. Here's a video. Look at this, and you'll see why. So generally speaking, that's what's happening. Um, I think that still there's a lot of improvements that could be made um, through – you know, design, but the fundamental parts of the process, you've still got to spend a little bit of time understanding, uh, spend more time on the shop floor, not looking at stats that come out of SPI and AOI machines. You know, look at the real thing because those machines will cut down your workload, but you still got to look at the real thing. 
Um, so that would be my advice. Don't spend too much time drinking coffee, reading a textbook, get there on the shop floor, speak to the operators because the operators see it day in, day out. You don't as an engineer. So they see things, but you might be able to pick up that bit of information and put the jigsaw together to solve a particular problem. Yeah, when I um, first started my company 32 years ago, at some point in my journey, I, I joined a CEO uh, peer group. Basically, we'd meet once a month and lie to each other about how well we're doing. And, um, um, and we'd have a speaker come in from time to time. And one of the speakers uh, said, you know, you need to um, MBWA. I'm like, what's MBWA? It's like management by walking around. And it was because you have to get out of your tower and and walk around the floor. And it's and I started doing that. And, you know, I, my, I don't have a, you know, eight million person company, um, but I would get out of my office and I would walk around the factory floor and I would with no agenda, just start talking to people. And as I got known for doing that, people would share things with me that they might not otherwise share with me. And a person would express a frustration about something here. And then I talked to a person here and I realized that if these two just communicated, even though they're in very different departments, you know, that I became the common conduit for mm. solutions. And it's not like I had to create a solution. I just needed to know, this person needs to know the trouble you're having here because they're the ones responsible to, to fix it. And and it's just amazing what you learn when you just walk around and talk to people. So I would imagine when you uh, get on the scene of a, of a new client, I, I'm just guessing, I don't know, I could be totally wrong, that one of the things you want to do is, is say, you know, leave me alone. Let me just walk around and talk to people. Is that, is that a common practice in your world? Uh, yes, but no. Um, it's only happened to me twice. Uh, one is with a well-known company who uh, is Nokia. And I was uh, just, you know, come along, spend the day, wander around. We'll get you to do a presentation at the end of the day, what you thought, what you saw. But just just, just wander around, talk to people, look at what they're doing. And, and that was really, really fun. And it's exactly as you described, you know, you saw something over there and thought, hold on a minute, you know, if we had a word with this other guy over here, he may be able to solve that particular problem. Right. Um, so it's, it's only happened twice, but, uh, you know, Nokia is the one that really sticks in my mind. They allowed right. me to do it. It's all, it was servers. It wasn't mobile phones. Uh, it was big server boards. Uh, but they had, you know, a phenomenal facility. Uh, and it was just great. The beer was right. good as well. <laughs> I'll bet. Yes. Um, what types of questions, when you're looking at, if a customer is looking to engage you uh, in in consulting services, what kind of questions do you ask them? And you know, how do you prep them for before you accept them as a customer? Well, bear in mind that it doesn't happen now. Um, really, right, in the past. Okay. Um, well, the first the first thing I would say is, well, show me. Just show me what the problem is. Um, you know, show me a good photograph of what the problem is. And I still do this today when somebody asks, you know, can you tell me about this or that? I say, well, just show me a photograph. And just, you can take it with your mobile phone. Just make sure it's in focus and get as close as you can before you send it. 
And if you do that, that's, you know, a long way to hopefully solving a problem uh, for them. Next thing is if I'm looking at, if I'm doing failure analysis, what I want to know, and this is with either with the company who's producing a product and having a failure or a company that is um, employing a subcontractor. I have basically a, a very simple form and it details all of the processes, all of the parameters on the processes. And I say to them, right, so we've got a failure. I think it's in there. So I want everything filled in up until that point. So if it's first side reflow, I want, um, you know, what board you're using, what finish you're using, what solder paste you're using, what you're printing, how thick, the print, you know, all the sort of techie stuff. But I also say when I'm going to design engineers and they're going vetting a, a subcontractor, I say, use the same form, get them to imagine a board, or if you're giving them a board to do um, their first run on uh, DFM review, get them to fill that form in. You've got all this process, and let's say your first batch of boards are wonderful, they sail through test, everybody's excited, you're going to place a million pound order, a billion pound order with this company. Make sure you've got that documentation because then you know how that product was built. You know what materials, what process was used. You've got everything. Now, you're not going to take that and go somewhere else, but you can retain that information. When you have a failure, you don't need me. You don't need an engineer who really understands the process. You just need that bunch of bits of paper because you can go and check the production line yourself and see what's changed. Very, very simple, but it works. So we asked, you know, you answered the question, what do you ask your uh, prospective customers? If, if a customer, if a company is looking, if they have a problem and they're looking for a consultant, um, what questions would you want to see or, or information uh, or what types of information should they have um, before they, they make a decision on who to hire? What types of, how do they be a smart consumer of consulting services? Um, I think the first thing to do is uh, make sure that uh, they've got their own team involved. You know, evidence that uh, their engineers, their quality staff, their designers, their purchasing people have had a conversation and, uh, you know, figured out what they think might be the problem um, and perhaps eliminated some of the obvious things that it's not. Mm -hmm. If it's, if it's, let's say you contact me and said, look, Bob, I've got this problem. Uh, can you tell me the solution? I really want to get a different perspective. So if we could get some sort of input from three or four different people, then you know they've had a conversation. So they're serious about what they want to do. They seriously want to s solve the problem because they spent time and effort. And obviously, financially, they've invested in the problem. Um, so I want to see some evidence of that. Um, that that's, you know, kind of normal have you ever experienced a shoot the messenger um scenario where you provide very raw advice or, or data back to the customer and 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 bob you're wrong it can't be that way you know um you ever get the 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 brunt end of that well yeah i mean you you do get it from time to time where people would say well no we tried that uh no somebody else suggested that and we've 
change the that from a blue one to a pink one and it didn't solve the problem so you get that but the most annoying issue and i had a conversation just literally today about this is a company saying yep we understand that so why haven't you fixed it we can't can't change that our customer won't allow us to change so you found the problem you've identified you've you've switched the switch the other way you've put it on to off or 30 to 22 on the dial and the problem's gone away and you've gone back to 30 and it's come back again yep so you proved you proved you can fix the problem yeah but we can't do that because we're medical or we're aerospace or we're automotive can't change that can't change anything so why are you bothering me then right. if you don't want to fix the problem <laughs> what's the point in hiring a consultant i can show you uh, and agree with you and confirm that what you've done is logical but um if you're not willing to or the other thing is you know please let put me in front of your customer let's talk it together um so often uh, companies don't want to get other people involved and it's the same as when you're purchasing something if you want to purchase a printed circuit board if you want let's say you want to purchase a new cleaner let's get the cleaner guy in with the engineer with the quality guy with the purchasing guy and sit down and talk about it the cost you know time you know all the sort of commercial and uh, technical issues and so you know are you going to buy it or aren't you going to buy it not this back and thought you know i want 10 percent off i you know i want a free training you know come on let's just get together like adults and talk about it right it'd be much quicker for everybody i i in my experience as, as you know manufacturing and selling capital equipment um it, I'm, I'm going to assume that your experience as a consultant is very similar, and that is there has to be near universal buy-in. Uh, if, if we have a, a rogue engineer who wants to get a certain type of equipment and their team, the tribe, is like, no, we don't want that type of equipment, it, it's just not going to be successful. It's always going to break, and there will always be pushback. And it, and then it's just so hard. And then everyone starts digging in, right? And and then it's just impossible to solve. Um, so a lot of that work has to be done first. So I would imagine in in your world as a consultant, they're almost. It would be wise anyway to have an agreement up front, like, you know, I'm going to suggest things. You know, don't reject them out of hand, even if you've tried them before. You know, we're going to do things a little different. Um, there's almost needs to be the, like a, a Geneva Convention, a rules of warfare, or in this case, consulting, uh, at how to receive that advice with an open mind, almost with a beginner's mindset. Are there, do you, did you set your clients up? Did you set your clients up in advance to receive news they may, you know, you suspect they may push back on? Do you train the client how to be trained? No, I don't necessarily think that has, that's happened. But, well, it has happened, yes, in so much that I've proved that the direction they want to go in is perhaps the wrong di direction. I mean, classic example, small palm-top computers. Um, they were having tremendous problems with rework and repair. They wanted to buy some new equipment. They wanted to buy four pieces of equipment, one for each production line. 
uh, because they were having problems with a particular part. And I said, okay, great. I'll get four or five suppliers in. All of your your team will come and have a play. We'll rework some product with the production staff who they're the people who are actually going to use it. Um, and we'll do that. We did that. And then the second day when we got rid of all the, the sales guys out of the way and, you know, everybody was happy. They'd all tried equipment. I said, I got these two pieces of equipment out, put them on the table. We did exactly the same thing. And three of the staff didn't know they already owned that equipment. So I then said to all the guys, we had an open meeting afterwards, which equipment did you like? Which one, you know, found the easiest? And four out of the people said, we like that stuff that, you know, you found locally. And I said, well, you already own that. Somebody had decided that uh, it wasn't any good. They kept burning boards. And it was simply that they, nobody had trained them how to use it. So I'd saved them a hell of a lot of money. The staff were, staff were happy because they liked that. It was kind of nice and simple to use. And, you know, and I'm sure that goes on all the time. You, mm -hmm. Your analogy about pushback because I don't like that process. You know, I want to go solvent clean. I don't want to go water wash. I want to go ultrasonic clean. I I, I, I don't want to use full immersion, whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is that we're trying to meet a standard. We're trying to meet a quality level. Um, and if both of those types of equipment can do that, then it comes down to sort of the commercial side and the longevity side, the support of the customer, the support of the supplier, etc. Those other factors come into play. The first thing technically has to do what you want it to do. How does the expert stay the expert? How, how, when you're in the world, back in the day when you were doing regular consulting and you were in the trenches, how do you, how did you, and how do you stay up to date? On, on emerging technologies? As much as possible, use these, as much as possible. Um, I mean, if we look at production lines, uh, I used to do production lines at exhibitions called the Bob Willis experience, you know, it's the Bob Willis printing experience, the Bob Willis conformal coating, the Bob I Willis cleaning experience. remember that, we were involved experience. in that once. Yeah, we were cleaning boards in, in your booth at one point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also at IPC, we had those sort of different test boards and things. Yeah, I mean, that was fun because uh, when I had those sort of, you know, uh, production line type things, we could do the stuff that we were trying to do to show the customer. We could do the stuff which ultimately hopefully sold a piece of equipment for somebody. Um, but I had the time to play. So I had all this equipment that I could, you know, I was paid to be there and I could play, you know, so I could build boards. I could use a different type of solder paste, nothing to do with perhaps, you know, the sponsor's <laughs> solder paste, but I could, you know, I just got all this equipment to play with and I did it for, you know, quite a few years. So that was something that I really enjoyed doing. It took a lot out of me because, you know, I, I was there way before all the sales guys and techies turned up playing. And then I would normally spend a bit of time afterwards uh, playing, but it allowed me to learn um, from experience. And wherever I could or wherever I can, you know, I would, uh, you know, love to do that. I mean, it's part of the reason, you know, for the, the subject we'll talk about in the book um the robotic experience i came up with this idea just before covid and it's co in the book it says covid one 
robotic soldering experience, Neil, <laughs> because we we came up with this concept, and my good friends um, who uh, are exhibition organisers, um, we we came up with this idea about having the the robotic soldering experience. So we'd have a number of robot suppliers there, some cord wire suppliers, components, boards, etc. And we'd all do stuff. We'd assess them. We would do micro sections, and you know, and and people could come along, but because of covid that stopped and we couldn't do it so we had a venue everything was you know <laughs> there to go i made the videos the promo videos the defect of the month uh, etc um so that's 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 my one failure but it's kind of failure because you know out of my hands obviously but it was a, it was a it was something that we just we just just couldn't continue and get off the ground because of um you know that the terrible thing that's happened uh, to the world um, which so it's, it's a real regret of mine. It's probably one of the reasons, you know, that I wanted to do something more on that particular subject. So I was yeah. fortunate enough to do a project on high temperature solders. So uh, uh, with MPL uh, using robotic soldering, and this is a few years back now, and then obviously repeat that exercise more recently for uh, my more recent work. Um, and that's you know one of the reasons why I will be at Productronica as well, um, um, and that will be my last time at Productronica, unfortunately. But I'll be having fun. Well, there you go. Um, we talked a little bit about philanthropy. We talked about your book. You've merged those two subjects together. Um, so let's let's dive into your your new book uh, first of all uh, about robotic soldering. Tell me more about that, and then uh, talk to me about. Uh, how um, anyone can receive a copy of your book and benefit the um, charity that uh, you've chosen to support. Uh, it sounds like breakfast TV, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, only I'm not, the, I'm not the cute hostess, you know. Uh, I was uh, just about to say that. Perhaps you bring on the cute hostess next right, to you and right. you know, yeah, come no, up with the other it's, questions. It's, it's me and Bob. It doesn't get any worse than that. We're like late-night versions of that, right? Okay. All right. So so I had this sort of idea about um, putting together all the information, and I still have heaps of stuff that, uh, you, know, won't, you know, won't be included. Um, a book. Because I've I've written a couple of books before, one on package on package technology, one on pin and hole intrusive reflow, and I've written sort of quite a few photo guides on conformal coating, on PCB surface finish, you know, blah blah blah. Um, so I wanted to, to produce a book on robotic soldering. So it's based the basic stuff, you know, what is it? Um, laser contact soldering. Um, design rules, you know, all that sort of, you know, stuff, um, and defects at the end, and you know, there's there's uh, links directly to video clips I've produced on selected defects. Um, so it's there. It was supposed to be 80 pages. It's um, now over 98, I think, pages. And I've had two forwards written uh, by good friends of mine uh, on, you know, what they thought about the book, etc. So the idea is it will be free. Um, I was originally looking for uh, sponsors, uh, corporate sponsors, um, because that was nice and easy. Because if I could get, you know, a couple of uh, big companies putting in, you know, a couple of thousand dollars or a couple of thousand pounds each, that was great. That was the starting point. 
Um, that hasn't happened yet. It might still happen before Productronica. That would be great. They could have a free ad and all that sort of good stuff. Um, they could then download it from their website. So it's a, a sales opportunity, a promotional opportunity, even if they're not directly involved in the technology. The other side of it, uh, I uh, it will be it, it is a, it will be available uh, after its launch at uh, Productronica on a Just Giving page just a donation page and i've already had um three four hundred uh pounds already donated just from engineers who responded who were interested and just donated something and they'll get the book at some point in the future well november um so that's 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 how it's sort of come about and there are things that there are improvements in it there's other things i could add there's new stuff coming out and I've written, I've sent a copy, a draft copy to all of the robotic uh, suppliers saying, this is what I've done. What do you think? Any criticisms, comments, suggestions, etc. You know, let me know. Um, it's just bringing all this information together in my own experience so far. And there's some guys in the industry uh, who've had a phenomenal amount of experience in this and were very, very experienced when I started. So they obviously are a lot more experienced now. And because of the interest, and if you, if you, it's like any process, if you get it right, um, it can be an incredible technology. And it allows engineers to say, okay, uh, I'm gonna. I'm interested in this, and I can. I can implement, etc. But they've got to bring the staff along with them, and they've got to say to, let's say, one or two staff that we're gonna we're gonna have a robot, and it's gonna do what you do. However, what we want our game, our our end game, is to have three or four robots, and you two look after those three or four robots. So they're learning a new skill because of their experience. They can see much more quickly than an engineer what's going wrong right and be able to say okay put my hand up ask this particular question they will gain more experience in the technology uh, and that's a beautiful thing yeah absolutely now for my listeners and my viewers this is sounding more like breakfast television now that you mention it <laughs> but for for our listeners and viewers around the world if you would like to get more information on bob's book uh, and how to um, acquire it. Um, go If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, um, as soon as you pull over and it's safe to do so, click on the show notes uh, for this episode. Uh, this is episode, I forget the number, but you'll find it. Uh, if you're listening to it, then obviously you already know. Uh, look at the show notes and uh, there'll be information. It'll be a link to the giving page where you can make a donation and receive a copy of the book. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, right below me, there's a little button that says show more. Uh, click that and you'll see a link uh, again to the giving page and uh, Bob's website uh, and all of that. I Don't try and book him for a consultancy, though. He will probably be scuba diving in Tahiti or Grand Cayman or you know who knows where. Uh, I know that's one of your other um, a little bit more well-known activities. Um, do, you, do you plan? A lot of people retire. And retirement's taken a different meaning. Back in my dad's days, retirement meant, yeah, you, you, you walked out of the office and you never worked again professionally. Uh, retirement now is, you know, I'm, I'm retired and I think I'm busier in retirement doing professional things like this than I was before. Do you, uh, do you think you'll still do some spot consulting here and there? Will there be things that kind of drag you back in a little bit? 
Yes, I mean, there, there was somebody who contacted me uh, literally, I think, uh, between our previous two conversations of only a week. But um, uh, somebody uh, is interested in implementing low temperature solders. And it's, it's another area of interest of mine that I did some work uh, over the last sort of four or five years. And so they, they've obviously been uh, offered some materials, you know, quite seriously by a particular vendor. And I said, well, you know, the first thing to do is let's have a look at your product. Uh, forget about the materials for a moment. There are lots of good materials out there. First thing is, let's see if it's appropriate to you. You've you already been told that you can save loads and loads of money um, from your process and your energy costs, etc., and do some stuff for the environment as well. But let's sort of look at the product first of all. So that's that's something. And I said, look, again, I said, and this is sort of kind of like an open open invitation. Uh, if you want me to be online uh, talking as we are today and go through the issues, et cetera, et cetera. You just make a donation to the charity and I'm happy um, wow. because I'm in doing what I'm enjoying doing. If you want to buy me a beer sometime or a cup of coffee sometime as well, <laughs> that's, that's fine. As, that, right. That's what fine as well. Right. But you know, it, it, it's, it keeps me involved. It keeps my interest. It utilizes the skills that I've developed over a couple of topics more recently um that people are starting to pick up on and that, that's 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 fun that's good it, it's what i do or what i've done for quite a few years last couple of questions um get out your crystal ball and and tell me what you see as upcoming challenges in our industry you know we have iot that's you know that's relatively new we have the electrification of cars and the autonomous cars all this stuff um what what in your professional opinion and all your vast experience uh, represents the greatest challenge for our industry well first i think the most obvious one is miniaturization of any mm. anything be it components um, we, we've talked about um, small chips, 0201, 01005, half the size of that and half the size of that. You know, they exist. You know, I've processed them. I've reworked them. They exist. But we then start to infringe on the tolerances of the other materials. So if we look at uh, PCB materials, they have not kept up. So the tolerances on the parts and the tolerances on the PCBs, you know, you can't you know, kind of get them to made up. And it's the same with the robotic soldering side of things. So many people go with their board and their components to a supplier and say, you know, I'd like to do some trials. Okay. So how are you going to hold the board and how are you going to hold the components together while this machine is doing it? Oh, we hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and how will the robot, after you programmed it, know where the board is? Uh, so they have to sort of relearn the fiducials or uh, the uh, the tolerances on a board if they're using fixtures and jigs, because you know those are the sort of things you learned when you were doing standard SMT. So I think it's all about miniaturization and the components and also the other substrates and materials that we need to deal with. And some of those have always been a challenge and will continue to be a challenge uh, for engineers to deal with. There's a you know phenomenon I've talked about many times on the show. You've heard it before, uh, on, with one term or another. But you know it's been referred to as the silver tsunami or the great retirement. There's a lot of you know the, the fact is baby boomers are leaving 
uh, are retiring at a at, at the highest rate of any group in the history of mankind. Um, in the U.S. alone, and I'm sure it's proportionately the same in other countries, um, it's estimated that um, between now and 2030, um, 10,000 baby boomers each day will officially retire. Uh, you know, we're the largest demographic uh, group in, 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 in North America anyway, and a lot of them are facing retirement in the next 10 years or so. So that's created a burden on our industry as experts leave. Uh, but it also has created a, an opportunity because we're seeing now more and more younger people finally enter our industry. What's your advice uh, for young people entering our industry? Say they, they leave university with a degree in you know, electrical engineering or whatever, and, and, and they show up and they're, they're green otherwise. Um, what, what's your best advice for them as they start to work on a factory floor? Best advice for anybody who's kind of a senior level, um, somebody who's coming out of university, is to spend time in every area of the factory. It's exactly like craft apprentices used to do when we did craft apprenticeships. You know, you learnt milling, turning, all the stuff I hated um, because you smelt with all the coolant. It's very unpleasant. And my, my mother used to send me to the bottom of the garden to take all of the clothes off before I came in the house. But seriously, going to each of the, 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 uh, uh, the areas um, of the factory and just understanding, you know, spending uh, two or three days, maybe a week at each step in the manufacturing process. And we did the same thing with uh, lecturers who were training some of our, our, our students uh, that uh, were on degree courses or scientific courses. You know, we got them to spend time. So... I can remember two of them who've gone on to do other stuff now and they came into our factory and they wanted to learn. So we put them in each of these different uh, places. They learned the skills and then went on and on. So the, the two things sort of married together in the end, not for that generation of engineers, but for the next generation of engineers, everybody benefited. So that would be my advice. Try and spend a bit of time at each step in the manufacturing process. Don't go in there and try and solve everything. Uh, with a squiggly chart or a, a set of graphs, you know, look at the basics of what you're doing. And again, if we go back to SMT, I can remember I was a quality engineer working for the quality director. So I had no remit to build boards or make stuff. Um, but when SMT was first dreamed up, I went on the shop floor. I got a batch of boards. I got a batch of components, uh, which I purchased and started building stuff. And it was a it was allowing me to learn and then operators said, well, what are these, what are these little square things and what are these things with legs on? Um, they're different. And don't they go through holes? And then that got me into training uh, because every Friday afternoon when it was clean down day, I would do a training course for the staff. Anybody could be, a, could join in with manager's permission but it had to be a topic related to the business. Um, and, you know, that was successful. But that's how I originally got into training. So I would say go to the different steps in the process, understand a little bit about the process before you ever try to implement change. Sound advice uh, from a sound consultant. Um, Bob, thank you for being my guest today. And thank you um, 
on behalf of the entire electronics industry, I'll be the spokesman, uh, or at least the self-appointed spokesman. Thank you for all the years of, of uh, good advice uh, you've given our industry and all the educational material you've provided. And thanks also for making much of that information available in perpetuity um, to SMTA and the other ways you give away your information. I was uh, not expecting when I asked you, are you really retired? Are you still going to get some gigs here and there? That you've you've even offered to do some uh, virtual consulting um, in exchange for a donation to a charity. I mean, that's that's amazing. That speaks a lot about uh, not just your technical capabilities, but your character. So um, thank you for supporting our industry uh, all those years. I look forward to um, bumping into you um, either underwater wearing scuba gear or uh, or somewhere on the planet. Uh, you, you you love to travel as I do, so one of these days we'll bump into each other and we'll have that beer. Uh, well, you can you can hopefully edit some of my uh, drone drone video one day. Oh yeah, you know I've never gotten into drones. I'm I used to fly planes. I I, I have a pilot's license, and and I've always been in the aviation. Before I actually got my pilot's license, I used to fly RC planes, and I've always been interested in drones, and I've just never quite you know had the opportunity to spend time with them, uh, although I'm fascinated with them. And, and fortunately now, drones, I think, are a little easier to fly than the early days of drones, because the early days of drones, you were, they were really joystick flying, right? And now, you know, they'll, they'll hold, they'll come back, uh, they'll avoid obstacles, kind of without the operator having to get too involved. Uh, so I will, I think that will be my next hobby, because I enjoy photography, I enjoy videography, uh, I enjoy anything to do with anything that, that defies gravity. Um, so uh, I, I think that'll be my next, my wife will call it my next vice. I'll call it my next hobby. Well, it's, it's worth, it's worth the investment because, uh, if, if you get a particular subject, I mean, obviously, cause I'm still playing walking football, uh, I can, I can video a match and then we can take and say, well, you know, should have moved there or you should have moved there. Um, and that's just so revealing um, and there's a friend of mine who's a very good goalkeeper. He gets really annoyed when I miss one of his great saves. He's less <laughs> excited when I show him how he missed a save. Right. But, um, when you can get it from like two, two or three angles, um, it, it, and it's not trying to embarrass him in any way because he truly wants to be to improve. He wants to find out how could I do better, um, and it's just a unique tool to be able to do that. Yeah, no, it, it definitely has my attention. And like I said, uh, I'll start playing with that someday soon. I just have to figure out how to how to get drone footage into Reliability Matters uh, podcast. Well, well, I, I, I find find uh, one of the uh, a representative from one of the manufacturers because the technology built into the drones today um, is significantly small, obviously, yes. Light, uh, significantly yeah, small. reliable. Right. Uh, I would say. Um, and, you know, I, I've had one particular drone that I took for a swim and uh, put it uh, in rice uh, for about three months and uh, it still worked afterwards. And even wow. when I looked inside, you could see a little bit of corrosion. I was lucky it wasn't salt water, um, but I was, yeah. it, it still worked. So oh. it, it, it obviously had some sort of coating on it, but they wouldn't confirm whether it was a formal coating or just a displacement coating material. But um, well, clearly I that's think a harsh environment situation. I mean, these drones, you know, they can fly inside, but they're really designed to fly outside in the elements. And 
and shock and vibration and moisture yeah. and you know all of the above all, all of yeah. the above but there are many things like that you know toys and things that go through in, incredible um uh, stresses and you know perhaps we don't learn from some of the fairly inexpensive equipment because the des the design for manufacture uh in certain instances has to go into far more detail for some of these products, but we dismiss them because they're inexpensive, relatively inexpensive, but uh, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a credible amount of technology. So it would be a, a fascinating subject. However, because of the well-known suppliers being all from China, they're probably less likely to talk openly about it and certainly not talk about failures. Yeah, I've, I've, I've long said that we need a new class system uh, for IPC, you know, classes. We have class one, two, three, and then we have a space addendum. Uh, I think we almost need a class H, a harsh environment, because mm -hmm. in order to build even toys that work in a harsh environment, you have to adopt closer to class three standards, but not for the same reasons. It's not because if it fails, people die. So I think there's certain elements of class three that are suitable for harsh environments. Not everything in class three has to be adopted, you know, for a, a drone or a, or a, or a Hasbro toy um, or, you know, connected football or something. Um, but, but class one um, classifications or standards uh, or levels of quality are just not suitable for most harsh environment applications. Even if the cost of failure is, you know, nothing um products still are expected to work you know you don't want to buy your six-year-old grandson a, a a toy and have it fail in three days right um because it wasn't designed for the environment it was being used in so uh, there's there's almost this i think this need to have a carve-out standard that uh really is just for harsh environments because so many products are going into harsh environments you're your comment when I asked you earlier, uh, what's the most challenging part of our industry? You said miniaturization, and, and I totally agree with that. And I think that's caused or exas exacerbated by harsh environments because miniaturization becomes more problematic when the environments are harsher because the the, the conductor the space between the conductors is so much smaller. Um, so, you know, we're 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 on the same page there. But anyway, I digress. However, I, I was saying I must... goodbye, and we started a whole nother podcast. However, I must just finish on that that point that i've always said there is no reason with uh, a fairly good design uh, and you know fairly good components and processes that everybody couldn't meet uh, one standard they could meet level three i you know I, I why have three Right. One is perfectly right. And if you look at the latitude within class three, if you keep saying, I've passed class three, just about, you know, you could get better. You've got to improve on that. Otherwise, you get worse. Um, so I, I, I've never agreed having a class system. You know, one class and three, you know, the worst end of class three and the best end of class three, there's your tolerance. Yeah, Personal I agree opinion. with that. Yeah, and I think I think the current situations within the, uh, the electronic space are kind of proving that out because more and more people are adopting a higher standard, even though technically they wouldn't have 
uh, been associated with that standard, but that's the only way to get the stuff to work, uh, you know? So, um, you know, the motivation is a little different. Um, you know, people making missiles are just going to adopt class three. People making cell phones are going to adopt class two. People making um, electronic toys, you know, Teddy Ruxpins or whatever, are, are going to adopt class one because that's what they think they have to do. But only I, because they're scared that something might go wrong and they might find out that it's a design related or component related. It's got right. nothing to do with the solder joint. Right, right, exactly. Well, okay, I see we do have some um, topics for our next interview. I will follow up with you in, um, in, in less than a year and we'll find out what uh, Bob Willis 2.0 or 3.0 or 10.0, whatever version of Bob Willis there is by then, uh, is doing. So, Bob, thanks again. Uh, again, listeners and viewers, check the show notes, get information on how to acquire Bob's book. And um, thanks for uh, being here, Bob. I, as usual, it's a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, that's another episode. Thank you for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure and click the like, subscribe, and bell icons to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at Reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks again for being part of our podcast family. Until I see you again, stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.